0: This podcast is offered by Jokoji Zen Center on the web at jokoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like
1: you.
2: Good morning, everybody. It's so good to be together, even if being together is taking. Thank you, Mike, Doug this opportunity to keep in mind even though I resisted preparing to share this talk has helped me reflect on the arc of my practice in the new light and especially today it feels like a good time to speak about reflection today is Yom Kippur the holiest day of the year in the Jewish calendar for nearly every Yom Kippur of my life I've spent this day fasting, reflecting, taking inventory of my behavior and choices over the last year. The theme of Yom Kippur is repentance and forgiveness. The words Yom Kippur mean Day of Atonement. According to Jewish tradition on Rosh Hashanah, uh, a person's fate for the coming year is considered. And God waits until today to inscribe that person's name in the Book of Life and to seal the verdict. During the days of awe, those days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we inventory our whole selves, our choices, our behaviors. We seek forgiveness for wrongs done against God, against us, against ourselves. At the end of Yom Kippur, we hope to be forgiven and get another one May this talk on this day be an expression of my intention to live a life of repentance, forgiveness, and acceptance for the benefit of all beings. My very first reaction to giving Away Seeking Mind talk was in the words, Way-seeking mind. Well, actually a punctuation is what got me. Between way and seeking seems to me like a giant directional with points on both ends. It seems to me. In exchange, the way is seeking us, and we may return the favor. It's a relationship. Sometimes we receive these highly curated invitations through this path of inquiry and acceptance. Sometimes invites are dropped right in our laps. and Sometimes we open them. These are invitations to show up for the relationship that we're actually pretty deep into. With each invitation, we return to a relationship with the wild unknowable, which is colliding Sometimes I think maybe it's colluding, to wake wake us up, to bring us to each moment, to this moment, together. And here we are. My friend advised me that the purpose of a way-seeking mind is to bring the Sangha in, share the suffering which brought me to the practice For me, that's like dragging out my old teddy bear, you know, one with one eye and loose limbs and mostly worn off fur and holding it up to show you. To say what I clung to for the first 50 years of my life. So it's not an easy share to let you past the centuries of my heart and to pull out my old tired stories. But one of the byproducts of sitting practice is a kind of friendly boredom with the me 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 of me the endless self-absorption which many of us may be familiar with becomes tedious and so talking about me seems like way too much then again that is the nature of the gig of the way seeking mind talk and also I've got nothing to lose. And just possibly by letting you in, you will feel less alone in your name. The great Persian poet Hafiz wrote Wish I could show you when you are lonely or in darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. I'm in for that effort. Here goes. The name of this talk is Relationship is everything. But to ease into the old stories, I'll start with a new story from my very first relationship that I know of, that with my mother. My mother, now 91, has a cottage on our property. She comes to stay with us several times a year for a few weeks, and she spends most of her time painting. She's an accomplished painter. For many, many years, she was studying the art of still life. I only just realized we were both studying the art of still life from a different point of view. She would come to California from Washington, and we'd go food shopping for her still life subjects, fruits and vegetables. I live in a very small town, and taking to my, my mother to the grocery store in this era was slightly fraught for me. In our town, we see our neighbors in the grocery store. So, I'll paint this picture, Mom. In the grocery store, someone has approached me while my mother is off, I won't say grouping, but checking out the vegetables. And Nico, could you put up a few of my mom's paintings? Yes, give me just one moment, please. I'll keep talking, you'll see them eventually. My mom was in her late 80s, I was in my late 50s, and I felt like I was about 13, completely embarrassed by my mother's conduct. <laughs> my very elegant, very mother would call out to me from across the grocery store in the produce department with things like, is this too obvious? Or, <laughs> is this too obvious? And it was challenging. I tried to roll with this. We have a hard one and very intimate relationship, and she's an artist. So I knew she was working through something. And that clueless digging is a process which I find sacred in all forms. So we'd go home with her anatomical fruit and vegetable selections, <clears throat> and I would photograph them for her to paint. If you see the, the paintings, tell me later if you think they're as suggestive as I do. <laughs> After many, many years of this, one day she called me from Washington, and she said very casually, "Hey, I figured out what all those sexy still lifes were about. Silence in California. She said it was all about relationships. Yes, Mom, it is all about relationship. So that's what my invitation to this practice, that they've all been about. Relationships, what else could it be? Relationship is everything. So here are a few invitations that I opened. When I was a very little girl, I had a very persistent question. Eight years old. I was very convinced, although not at all convincing to my brothers, and one of them is here, he might remember this. I was very convinced that I would have existed even if I hadn't been born to my mother and father. I was sure I would have existed even if I hadn't been born to this mother and this father. I wanted to know how I was born as me, how I was born in this body, with this point of view, and with this family. I'll let you think about that. Another invitation when I arrived when I was around six years old. My first grade teacher sent me home from school saying I looked pale. When I was taken to the doctor that afternoon, I was in renal and heart failure from a complication of strep throat. Thank you, Ms. Ward, wherever you are, I remember you. I remember waking up in the hospital and seeing my dad at my bedside. I asked him if I was going to die. And he said, I don't know. I'm doing the best I can. I don't know. It must have been very painful for him to say this to me, his youngest child, his only daughter. But His courage was a huge gift. I remember being in that little body, in my little ruffled nightgown, and accepting the fact that death was in my immediate circle of experience. And I let it in. It came with a moment of surprise and absolutely no fear and no worry. It was entirely acceptable to me, to that little girl. Spoiler alert, I lived. (laughs) So that has stayed with me my whole life. Hang on. Too much me, 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 see? My whole life, I always felt that my living was right on the edge of something which could go either way at any moment. I was reminded of this the other day by a law school classmate who told me that at parties in law school, I wanted to talk about death and life and God when everybody else just wanted to get drunk. He thought I was a real drag. I haven't moved much off that mark. Speaking of marks, I was raised in a Jewish home to self-described agnostic, if, if not atheist, parents. Until high school, I was the only Jewish kid in my Christian school, so I had many years of feeling different, chosen in a kind of uncomfortable way. Being considered the other, left an impression, a deep impression for which I am profoundly grateful. This impression is full of compassion for all people who are marginalized or otherized. I keep Shabbat in honor of all ancestors who faced impossible hardships by virtue of being considered the other and in honor of all people who are still marginalized. May we please stop doing that to each other. More invitations arrived in high school. When I was 16, an art teacher invited me to learn to meditate. This took the form of sitting quietly for 20 minutes, followed by tea and cookies. It's a nice way in. I remembered that I realized quickly I had zero control over the internal dialogue. And that I also had the egoistic notion that I was in charge. Thank you, Mrs. Smith, I remember you. I would return to sitting practice off and on for the next 40 years before I stayed seated. Another invitation that came in high school was through the experimental course I was enrolled in based upon the BBC series, The Ascent of Man by Jacob Bronowski, who was a mathematician and a science historian. Bernowski showed me that everything presented in school as a separate subject, art, mathematics, history, literature, science, it was not a separate subject. They all arose together. They were all inextricably connected. I don't know how it could have been thought to be otherwise, but it's not. I saw then that every moment in which we live is the actual activity and context of relating what this is right now. I'd let that truth run through my fingers somehow, but I understood it as a child. I remember being five years old, lying on the bright green lawn of our suburban California backyard, waiting for my turn at the telescope. I had three older brothers. It was a while. I remember insisting, again, much to my brother's annoyance, that there was a relationship between the crickets and the stars. Either the crickets were singing to the stars, or the stars were making music for the crickets. I had no doubt about this. My brothers tried to persuade me otherwise. It didn't work. I had no doubt that everything was right here and available, and asking kind of like to hold hands with me. Like everything else I understand, I know this without knowing how I know it. Everything works together. For those of you who are projecting an idyllic child on me, go ahead and stuff your ears now. Childhood isn't all crickets and stars, probably not for any of us. My parents had married at 20, had four children in 10 years, Well, my dad was in medical school, then residency, internship, fellowship. Our family was what would now be called dysfunctional. Maybe all families are. Our family was blown to pieces by the dynamic of all that suffering. My parents later divorce, and one of my brother's disappearance. He is still lost to us. I felt like a rubber band, stretched between my parents, my mother in Europe, my father in California, having to choose between one or the other. When I was 14, my mom moved permanently to Europe and we were more or less separated for 20 years. I see now that from a very young age, I was presented with the challenges of ambiguous loss, a loss that occurs without closure. First, my brother's disappearance, my mother's departure, the shadow remnants of my family's life together. Later, I faced it with my father's illness, and I face it again with my husband's illness. Now, my dad used to say you can get a lot of mileage out of one good problem, and I think I'm getting that mileage, Dad. It matters what happens in childhood. That's where we begin to interpret our experiences and take measures to survive. Those safety measures turn into beliefs, which are actually very helpful to me. They made me grow up independent, resourceful, endlessly capable. These beliefs were helpful until they were not, until I saw they were getting in the way of my being helpful to myself and to others. Over the years, I have learned from friends who open their hearts to me that some of my childhood beliefs are pretty popular delusions. Maybe these beliefs will be familiar to you. I'm not safe. No one is here for me. I'm not good enough. I will be abandoned. These beliefs were not false and they were not true, but they were very real. The process of coming to terms with those beliefs and how they were working in my life took a while. I had to get access to the child's view. Over many years, I tried to navigate the challenge. My mother and I learned to have a new relationship, the same with my brothers, for which I am so deeply thankful. Family is reassembled and reinvented all the time, and I find lots of room in the heart for more family. Another invitation came in the first few moments of holding my first newborn son, Ben. Everything in the delivery room faded away, and all I had was me and this newborn baby. I was deep in the depths of remembering some sacred... Wisdom. I remembered that I'm related to everyone. I remembered that everyone started out just like this baby in my arms, absolutely perfect. I remembered that each being is incalculably precious, even if they don't know it, even if they never know it. And that everyone from addict to the anointed was this child I remembered that I was this child. And that realization sent me into psychotherapy for a while. I remembered we were all in the arms of a really great, mysterious connection. Another invitation arrived in the form of a slow motion goodbye to my dad as he traveled through Alzheimer's. I learned from my dad that being fully human, with all of the glorious messiness, that's the real job of being here. A kind of nobility of engaging with the mess, not turning away, not shrinking from the difficulties, and that continues to support me and challenge me. It helps me stay with the grief that is ours from time to time. My dad was not afraid of grief. I hope I inherited a smidgen of his courage. I had a really good example. and I really tried hard to show up and be upright. And this is not an easy practice. And I fail. And I keep trying. Watching my dad die, drip by drip, I was heartbroken. It was a crack in my heart that pointed me back to sitting. And it kept me seated. Maybe it was his last gift to me. Seeing him evaporate, feeling it was somehow unjust, put me in the dark. I couldn't fix anything. And even then, I was aware that nothing needed fixing. It was very painful for me to show up for my life. I felt like I was in a cave alone staring at a wall for many years. What had defined me was blown away. The walls came down, my lid was off. As my friend says, when the lid is on, the stuff just stays in there. So when you take the lid off, it's dying to come out. And it was definitely coming out. I lost my bearings. I had to start over. To those of you to whom I did not show up in those years, I'm sorry. I had to start over to cultivate a mind to face the world without those walls, without the endless hoisting of all the people I thought I should be. It was frightening, and it was hard, and I believed I was alone. Although friends showed up. A yoga teacher listened very carefully when I told her that my whole body was shaking with my heartbeat while I was sitting meditation. Another friend told me that the stuff that was coming up in meditation was okay. She said, yes, it's that. This digging, uprooting work, is what no one else can do for you. At least no one could do it for me. I kept sitting and seeing that it was I who created all my suffering.
1: It looks like you've temporarily lost Jikoji. Please stand by.
2: Nico, can you hear me?
1: Yeah. Yes. Okay.
2: So I don't know where we were, but I'm gonna pick up with the suffering. I kept seeing sitting and I realized that all of my suffering I was creating. The suffering, the pain, the beauty, and the joy. I had a husband and sons who, whether they knew it or not, were reflecting back what I was offering, and that helped me go even deeper. I was a wreck for a long time. There was nothing to do but be a wreck. I'm not sure I showed up for people. It felt like something was burning in me. There was a light connected to that and I had to sit with all of the problems. They were all interwoven, something, maybe everything was waiting for me. Also, I didn't have a choice. I had nowhere else to go, and I still don't have a choice, and I still have nowhere else to go. Slowly, I began to see a broader field of my experiences and my choices from childhood forward. It's like I had the point of view of a spider in the corner of the room and I could see all of the players. When I could see multiple views, when I wasn't the center of the story, a profound compassion arose for all of the other players, including this one. And an awareness followed that everything is just as it is and it's okay. It became very clear to me that, as my dear friend says, everyone is always doing their very best. Their effort and my effort are not different. When I feel like something is fundamentally wrong with me or damaged, I have the option to open my heart and to see that I'm standing with everyone in that room. In fact, all of humanity is standing with me. And I'm standing with all of humanity. Sitting alone on the porch, I was hoping that someone with a lot of experience sitting still would show up at my doorstep. I live in a town of a thousand people, so this was pretty delusional. And yet... A year after my father's death, I met Koan Sensei in a tasting room in Los Olivos. No, we were not drinking wine. We were sitting Zazen. The tasting room was called Samsara. So if you want to know the exact location of the beginningless cycle of repeated birth, mundane existence, and dying, you can walk there right from my house almost at my doorstep. So that was a pretty obvious invitation. That day, I decided I'd be driving to Santa Barbara every Sunday to sit with Koan in his Sangha. It was barely a choice. It was just so obvious. Sitting with this steady, funny, compassionate, very human teacher. And that Sangha changed the course of my life. I learned so much through their generous, quiet support. Imagine this. I'm sitting in a corner of a dark room with my sangha, weeping through a meditation period because something has arisen. Some old friend has appeared to teach me something new. And a senior student moves her seat immediately behind me. I feel her calm, I feel her compassion. She's showing up for all of us without a word. That Sangha allowed me to be me, to be absolutely perfect just like this, albeit needing a lot of improvement. My deepest intention is to return that favor to all beings. When Koan was preparing to step down as our officiating priest, he introduced us to Jokoji and to Doug. It was really easy to pick up that invitation. Everyone in our Sangha picked up that invitation. Open-hearted Doug. We are very deeply grateful To practice and learn with him. He is now our guiding teacher. Through Doug, I met Mike. The first conversation I had with Mike was about water. About 10 minutes in, I looked into his eyes and I said, how do I know this guy? There is this recognition. An experience of meeting someone without anything in the way. I try to listen to that voice that knows stuff that I don't know. And in that moment, there is no hesitation, no question. I followed that voice here. I tried to be obedient to mystery. Koji, I found home and friends that I will keep close for the rest of my days. So the features in common to all these stories is relationship how we recognize and return to relationship, this mutual recognition to which we are returned. I've only spoken about the most obvious level of relationship, but we have it in everything from right here in the ground or the chair you're sitting in, how it holds us, to the generous view through these windows, to the trees outside who actually give us air, the virus, which is telling us loud and clear how interconnected we are. One last invitation might explain this recognition piece. One Sunday morning, serving very nervously as Koan's Jisha, nervous because Cohen likes to change the protocol, two minutes before service begins. We chanted the jewel mirror awareness, like we did this morning. It's one of my favorites. Sitting Zazen, I very suddenly realized that Zazen is the jeweled mirror. I saw that whoever I am, whoever was in that mirror, all of the versions of me, that constantly changing scene of the mirror, they're all me. None are better None are worse. None of them need to be fixed. None are good versions. None are bad versions. They're just what my friend calls what's coming up right now in that amount of time. When I zoomed out and noticed everyone and everything else in that mirror, the same truth implied. It was all literally a river of change. Not a thing needed to be anything different. I could see that no one in that mirror was there. Nothing was in that mirror without my seeing it. And we were kind of co creating this relationship content together. We were the action of the relationship. If you look in the mirror long enough, all of humanity stares right back at you. I was returning returning again and again. There is no separation between anything or anyone. As my friend says, this is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. I have a deep intention to live that truth. So the way seeking is still happening. It's a conversation like this between self-discovery, the clueless digging that only this person can do, and yielding to a life that I understand is not entirely my own making. And that's all I have to work with, the relationships of our intertwined existence. At Ben Connolly's Sashin at Jikoji last March, right here, Ben did a circuit around the room in the morning as we were sitting. I was so touched by his shadow, bowing to our shadows in the early morning, a mutual recognition, saying hello, saying goodbye, a brief passing acknowledgement of the mutuality of our lives. I was sitting, shedding grateful tears, watching the shadows meet, merge, and dissolve. It returned me to the arms of wonder, the way the leaves move in the wind, the space between two tiny flowers in the garden, the penetrating spark of light when our eyes meet. We see ourselves in each other. Everything is a conduit for connection, for relationship, from vegetables and fruit to crickets and stars to us, Right here and now, everything is relationship. In honor of Yom Kippur, I offer you a single important word on this final day of the Jewish High Holy Days. That word is hineni, which translates to here I am. It is a word that challenges us to avoid the trap of mindlessness and passivity to start doing the thing that needs to be done, to focus on the task before us, to show up. Here I am, showing up together with you and everything, but it's only the beginning. We learn that life is meaningful when we remember our connectedness, when we recognize our struggles and successes are inextricably intertwined, just like all those subjects in high school, when we help each other. That's how I got here. Here I am in relationship with you and everything. Thank you.
3: Hi, Pamela. Hi. I keep it very short. Thank you for opening my heart. Uh, Thank you for for, uh, mentioning office and mentioning the Jewish Heritage. I created... uh, these two different cultures really see each other's humanity and each other's greatness. And, uh, I kept noticing your smile as we're talking about tough things during your, I mean, pain, during your talk. So I want to offer you just one line from office. I won't go quote the whole poem because it'll take too much time. But, uh, he said, with a grieving heart, bring smiling lips, to the Chalice of Life, instead of crying to the High Heavens, should an injury come your way. I will say one more line for him because it's beautiful. Upon hearing this, in reference to your comment about uh, when you are a kid and the crickets and the stores, in, upon hearing this, the Venus in the Heavens picked up the loot started dancing, and said, drink from this life. Also, remember, one of my friends was called, Dharma name is enlightenment that brings benefit to all beings. And that's what I felt from your talk. So thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Kaveh.
1: Randy, go
4: ahead. Okay. Um, yeah, it, that was a that was a wonderful talk, and I just want to express my appreciation of your nourishment from living as a, a real source of Zen practice. Uh, I don't know how else to put it, but uh, you've, um, and I think that 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 is. Uh, a lot of them is digesting what we've gone through in, in a special kind of way. So um, yeah, thank you. I, I love that story of the five-year-old knowing the relationship between the crickets and the stars. And it sent me back to a memory I had about that age lying on a warm cement at night and looking up at the sky and seeing this incredible pa- color pattern of blue and red and saying to myself, that's God. And uh, I've always remembered that, that uh, it was God, God was something a little bit different than what I was getting from home. <laughs> I don't know. So thank you very much. That was wonderful.
1: Thanks, Randy. Thank you, Pamela. It was a a wonderful talk. Um, Thanks for letting us know where you come from. Now I know you. You know, thank you for acknowledging all those who influenced you, particularly teachers. Um, I don't hear that acknowledged a lot, but without them, I think we, you know, they start us on a path. And um, just, it was just a wonderful talk. Thank you very much. Thanks, Michael.
2: There's someone here who's going to speak. I hope we can hear you. This is Rain.
5: You're a wonderful storyteller. Uh, I got so emotional, and um, I'm so grateful that I came today. Um, I, uh, I, too, find that it's really important to show up and be present and try to Um, be mindful within the world, even when you have so much resistance, Um, you know, an abusive parent or, you know, a dysfunctional child. But, you know, your first experience is you you just want to run away, like you can't help. But I feel like if you just keep showing up and doing what you do, I saw every frame that you presented and and the image, and it was um, was really helpful, Mm -hmm. so thank you so much. Thank you.
2: Someone else here, Mm Joku
1: thank you so much for a wonderful dharma talk. So, I heard you say the way, the way, many versions of the way, and uh, I'm thinking about the way forward in these unpredictable times. You mentioned something your father said and all the the revelations of yourself that you gave us, very beautiful, it's wonderful to see you so clearly. You mentioned your father said, his way of being was not to shrink from the grief and the messiness Mm -hmm. of life. As I look forward for so many in the world, it's an unpredictable future and difficult, maybe a lot of difficulty ahead When you look forward? can you try to see into the future in the way that lies ahead? What, what do you see?
2: I don't know if you're gonna like my answer. <laughs> I don't do a lot of looking forward. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, I, I don't I just don't. I look at what's right in front of me. Maybe that's all the fault of this practice. I don't know. I see what's right in front of me most of the time. Uh, And I try to respond to that. And I think that helps me not get too caught up in uh, the kind of grief that's not productive, Um, that has to do with stuff that may not come to pass. That may come to pass, but I can't do anything from way out here. It's like casting a fishing line, you know, you're on the shore the lines in the water, you have to wait. So I don't think there's any point in trying to reel it in yet. And uh, I don't know why I'm talking about fishing, but I guess because we're fishing for the future when we start projecting
1: mm-hmm.
2: and out there. And uh, I don't think the future's here. It's, it's here It's here. So I wish I had a better answer, but that's what I do. I think about now.
1: Go ahead, Karn. Um, <clears throat> thank you for the wonderful talk, Pamela. Uh, I had a question about about um, the sangha and the teachers that you met. Uh, that you met. Um, could you say a bit uh, more about the compassion of the sangha and the compassion of the teachers uh, that you met along this journey, and what that meant to you? or what that felt to you, not so much uh, intellectually, but, but what that felt to you for the Sangha being there or the teachers being
2: there? Um, well, my first experience, Karin, was in Santa Barbara Zen Center. Some of my friends from there are here. And I had the luxury when I came there of being anonymous and incapable and incompetent at everything related to the temple. And it was a great gift to be a nobody, really. And I was um, still, maybe still I'm now, hoisting up faces, you know. Who should I be? Who am I supposed to be? Who ought, ought to be? And they didn't say much, so I can't tell you that they gave me the you know key to the universe with words. They gave me the key to the universe maybe with silence. They, I always say they were like the spines holding up the room. And I felt pretty spineless in those days. I, I thought I had done a lot of work on myself. I'm still doing that work. And they were quiet and deeply quiet. And it just gave me so much room. And I felt safe. I feel safe here too. Just this kind of safety about letting it all off of me so I literally was sitting in the corner crying and uh, someone would come and sit beside me or behind me and she would give me a spine for the rest of that sit but nobody ever said anything nobody ever did anything Um, they just supported my practice I don't know how to explain that but I felt that uh, at different times I was on the outside of this boat, and I was supporting them in the water. And other times, they were on the outside of this boat, and I was in the, in the, inside the boat, and they were supporting me. And I guess I felt like I was in the company of kindred spirits, that people there were willing to do some work, at the inside job work. But we didn't talk much. You know, we would sit, do kinhead, sit. Sometimes we'd get to eat. And I don't know how to tell you how they helped me, but it was sitting. It wasn't sitting. So I don't know anything except, I always joke, I don't know anything except what comes through my bum, (laughs) sitting. So I encourage you to sit.
1: Thank you.
3: Pamela, that was one of the most beautiful dharma talks I've ever heard. Stop it.
1: It's true. You don't realize how amazing you are.
2: Well, that's good. It would be terrible if I did.
1: Probably you're right. (laughs) You are probably right, because you were pretty damn amazing. Oh, it's such... Great good fortune for me to have you in my life. Thank you so much.
5: Thank you, Kyushin.
1: Joy. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Nenzen,
0: I agree with everything everyone has said. Fantastic, lovely talk. Thank you very much for that. Um, there was something that came up for me, and I wanna backtrack a little bit. Uh, recently, in Oxbow Zen, we, had a book study by a Janet Abels. and what she did, she looked at, I think there was about eight or 10 of the ancestors and, and gave up a write up about them. And there was one thing that I picked out in most each one of them. And it was the fact that they seemed to have an inner voice that they listened to. Mm-hmm that they knew something. And my understanding of of some of our teachings in Zen is not knowing. In your talk, I also heard some of, I knew, I had this feeling, I'm knowing. And I have a lot of that experience myself that I feel like I know. And I try to make the distinction between what I feel like I know and what I think I know. I think there's a difference there. And I was just wondering if you have any insight on that that you'd like to offer.
2: Would you shoot me if I said I don't know? (laughs) Um, I I don't know. You know, I'm thinking I don't know, but I'm thinking that Uh, That voice is not, maybe I used no too much because uh, it's not knowing, knowing it's Mm -hmm. like a calling, you know, like when you feel, (laughs) when you feel your center calling you out, Mm
6: -hmm. it's
2: not, it's not a knowing here. It's like, I don't know how to explain that with words, but. You know it when you see it. That's what Chief Justice Douglas said about pornography, by the way. Just <laughs> all small fact. <laughs> he didn't know how to define pornography, and he said, well, you know it when you see it. It's in a Supreme Court decision that way. Any event. Sorry. Um, you know it when you see it, right? I think you're saying that. You know mm-hmm. it. You know it when you see it with your gut. You don't see it with your eyes.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: When you see it, you know it. It's that kind of knowing, Joey. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think it's like a choice even. It's not like you're making a decision. So I don't know if that's helpful, but that's my experience. And it's, boy, it really, as a young woman, that voice saved me from a lot of really dangerous situations. I was really independent mm-hmm. and did crazy things, and I never got hurt. I mean, I hurt myself, but the world <laughs> didn't hurt me. And, I was, you know, I kept myself safe by listening. So you have to listen and uh, then you maybe know.
0: A good lesson. A good lesson. Thank you.
2: Okay, let's go to uh, Donna and then we'll go to Rebecca.
5: Donna. Hi, thank you.
2: Hi. <laughs> First of all, I want to say, I'm, I'm profoundly grateful to you for that beautiful,
5: deep talk. Thank you for that. And I love what you just said
2: about calling because um, that's my experience as well. They're just these callings that can't be ignored. And uh,
1: listening to them and following them has been really important for me.
6: Nenzen, thank you. I have such deep gratitude for your Dharma talk today. Um, And I'll just briefly share a little glimpse of one of my first experiences with Santa Barbara Zen Center earlier this year. Um, It was, you know, kind of snack time after Zazen and I found myself next to your mom, Lillian, and just kind of sitting back observing. <laughs> um, and she said something that stuck with me and, and um, you know, I'd shared like, well, I'm very new here. <laughs> and she said, um, oh, it's good people here. So, um, so you'll find your place. And so that, just feel so aligned with the topic today, with relationship. And um, that brings me to a little bit of a, a question, wondering if um, you could share a little bit about maybe the process that you went through of going from sitting and being a new Sangha member to, now um with your ordination and just so proud of where you are now and grateful of what you've brought to my life personally so.
2: and you to mine Rebecca mm-hmm. um I'm not sure what you're asking exactly but the process was being a beginner you know just following my heart to Santa Barbara, following Koan, really. And um, slowly, over a few years, just showing up and sitting and exploring what came up and sitting. You know, um, some people think that Zen is not a psychotherapeutic process. I don't know. Maybe it's because of my mind. Uh, It is to me. It is at least... The component that is transformative seems psychotherapeutic to me. I didn't really uh, talk about a lot of the things that were coming up. They were my own digging. Um, But somehow I took responsibility, I guess. I felt like I put the last little nail in the coffin of being a grown-up. Maybe not. (laughs) Probably lived to regret that. But... That's how it felt like. I just kept gathering in the things that um, I had to take responsibility for. Not like in a way that I was hurting myself. I just saw the interconnection of stuff that happened long before I was even on the planet. And I accepted that. And that process happened through sitting. I'm not sure I've got a better explanation than that. Just as Koan would tell you, and I will tell you in his stead... Keep going. Just keep sitting and not expecting any miracles. So you don't even have to expect all the dread that came up with me. Just keep sitting. Stuff will show up for you. I promise. (laughs) That's. I don't have any opinion about my ordination. Doug has advised me multiple times that it's a step down. So I've got no opinions and I'm not going to have any opinions.
6: Thank you. And thank you to everyone who's made this possible too, behind the scenes. I haven't yet been lucky enough to visit Jacochi.
2: And Emmy Yujo, is here.
5: And then, thank you for seeing the world as profoundly inconceivable as it is, for being your true self, being open and sharing and willing and to have that childlike curiosity still with you always and for putting it into words for all of us for sharing thank you for all of it
1: You been
7: speak speaking of knowing um the first time I met you and sat with you not more than two years ago, felt like I can knew you, and then I have this miserable or blessed affliction where I forget all of the stuff and for the for the first time I forgot someone I forgot you and then the second time I met you I immediately thought I knew you (laughs) so it twice I you succeeded in being very (laughs) knowable And I really appreciate all your humor and your wondrousness.
2: And I, you, Ben, I remember that day, the first time.
1: It is time Oops. it is time to uh, close. and uh, it was nice to see Ben at the last in the last frame because um, Shishun Ben is going to lead our Science and Buddhism discussion this afternoon at two o'clock. So I hope everyone will join us for that and we'll reassemble. but um, why don't we close for now? with our closing gatha. And we're going to close uh, this event as well at that point.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more
1: information about Jikoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.